Father, we have just sang a song to you where we have declared that we are yours. In fact, we're forever yours. And we sang that in truth this morning, but the reality is that there's just so many moments in this last week where that hasn't been true of our lives, where we've lived for ourselves. So God, we are thankful for your grace and your forgiveness and the redemption through Jesus Christ that allows us to gather this morning and to be reminded that we start anew. Help us this morning, God, meet you in a, in a real way, in a life-changing way, so that when we leave this morning, we leave different than when we came. And so that the song that we just sang can be more true this next week in more moments. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. Thankful for the worship team this morning, aren't you? And I am reminded, just a couple of random thoughts have nothing to do with the sermon, but being on the pastoral team at Lake Avenue Church is kind of like being in the Sound of Music and part of the Von Trapp family. Have you noticed how many pastors we have that like play instruments and sing and preach? They're like the triple threats of ministry, but you're stuck with this, this is all I got. So I'm especially thankful for Pastor Jeff and Pastor John and their leadership this morning. You all sing and do everything. The other thing is people have asked, and uh, if you were with us Christmas Eve, you saw Pastor Greg. Um, his, his grandchildren are in town, and it is planned way before something happened with his father that I would be preaching this week, so I'm not plan B. Um, and his father, remembering he's 92 years old, um, his father has, has, is doing well, so continue to pray. Um, so this morning, I just want to start out by sharing with you very briefly how the perfect Christmas morning would go if my family would say, hey, Dad, um, how do you want us to do Christmas? This is what I would say. We would wake up very calmly. We'd come down to the living room. We would all find very comfortable seats. And then someone, not me, would go under the tree and start passing out presents. So you would have next to you a pile of presents, not too many presents, maybe like five, uh, next to you. And then calmly, one at a time, you would open the present. It would be somebody's turn. And you would open the present and look at it, pass it around, and then the next person would go. Halfway through, we would stop for some coffee, maybe a Danish, maybe some probably bacon, that would be good. Um, And it would just be very slow and beautiful, and we would appreciate what everybody received, and everybody would talk about why they got that gift for the other person. So that's that's perfect Christmas, right? So remember, I have a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and this Christmas, the only thing I can say was just kind of chaotic. It was like, I've never seen anything like it. I think last year, our two-year-old really wasn't understanding what Christmas was, and so he wasn't really into it. But this Christmas, 5.30 in the morning, ready to go. It's Christmas, tearing into stockings, throwing things. And, and several times I tried to get them to have my perfect Christmas. Several times. Stop that. Slow down. It's your brother's turn. Wait, your mom's going to open something. And it just went to, it it didn't work at all. So I gave up after a long while. And I thought to myself, in light of what I was studying this week, this is really interesting, that that for our children it was really hard for our, our sons to enter into the other experience that their brother was having. 
Quite honestly, they were so self-absorbed with what they were receiving or what Christmas was for them that they were unable to pause and to pull out of that self-absorbed moment to see what, what was happening for the other. And, and, and the reality is, it's not just something that children do on Christmas. They just have the courage to do what we're all thinking. <laughs> that it's very common, it's human nature for us to take someone else's moment, to take someone else's news, to take someone else's crisis, something else going on with someone else, and we make it our own. And we fail to enter into the experience. We have this incredible drive to care about ourselves. We have this incredible desire to just think of ourselves, our particular family, our little world. That drive to think and care about ourselves first and foremost is exactly what the message this morning addresses. This is our final message in our peace series where we've looked at the life of Jesus and seen how he lives out this idea of reconciliation, remembering that when we started this series, we were taught and saw through the life of Jesus that the first step that Jesus took was he was one who entered in into tough relationships, into people who were written off, into hard circumstances, And that the call on our lives as those who follow Jesus, that we too are not to avoid places, but to enter into those tough areas, those tough relationships, to see people all as created in God's image, worthy of relationship, worthy of our time. Step one was enter in. Then we learned that once we enter in, we're to also call people to a life with Christ. In fact, we're called as followers of Jesus to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily and to follow him. And that same calling, we are to live out and to help people uh, be called to a different way, a different way of life. And last week, Pastor taught us uh, that we are to also walk with people. That, that following Jesus isn't just about calling people to and using our words to tell people what they're doing wrong or how they should live differently. And it's not just a verbal relationship, it's one where we physically enter in to walk with people in life. And this morning, we are going to learn a little bit more about what it means to walk with people. Remembering that we have this incredible drive to walk with ourselves. We need the words of Jesus. We need the teachings of Jesus so that we can overcome that and be the kind of people who know how to walk with other people. Now, I'll warn you, this is a tough text. I mean, anytime you read Jesus' teaching, it should be a little tough. It's so tough that when I got into my office yesterday morning to kind of work on this all day, I didn't get very far where I was just very confronted with the many moments this past week where I was not living these teachings in my own family. So what I had to do, because a phone call just wouldn't work with the chaos of home, I wrote my wife a note, apologized for the ways that, that I'm being challenged through the text, where I fell short, and asked her for her forgiveness. My prayer is that that wouldn't just be an isolated experience for me, but that as we all meet Jesus this morning, that he would point out to us where we can grow in terms of walking with people. So if you have your Bible, please open it to Mark chapter 10 and stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 10, we'll be starting in verse 32. Now they as Jesus and the disciples and and some of the crowd... They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. 
Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John, and Jesus called them all together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Incredible and very descriptive narrative. In so many ways, it just kind of teaches itself. But I want to pull out just three moments in the scripture we just read, three moments in this story that I think are worth looking at. First one is this. The first thing we can notice in the scripture is that Jesus reveals his mission. Jesus reveals his mission. Right, we have just celebrated Christmas morning where we remember and recognize the very unexpected beginning of Jesus' life. The very unexpected start to what the Messiah would be and how he would come. And so when Jesus is with his disciples now declaring how the end of his life will be, it's important to remember that the end of his life was just as unexpected as the beginning of his life. So he pulls them aside. This is the third time in the last three chapters that he has pulled the 12 disciples aside to tell them about how it's going to end for him. First time was in chapter 8. He pulls them aside, tells them what the end of his life will look like, that he'll be rejected, that he, will, that he will be killed, that he will rise from the dead. And immediately following him declaring his mission in chapter 8 is where we have the scripture that so many of us are familiar with. We taught on it a few weeks ago where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. In chapter 9, Jesus again pulls his disciples aside, shares with them about his passion, about how this will all end for him, how he will be killed and raised from the dead. And immediately following that, we see another teaching in which Jesus continues with his disciples where he says, the first will be last and we are to be servants of all. So each time that Jesus shares about his death and resurrection in Mark, He follows it with what it means for his disciples and daily living. Jesus did not just teach about how it's going to end for him and that was the end of the story. It was always followed up with real, practical, what this means once he does this. 
The disciples are, are learning the reality of Jesus' messianess, and they're also learning the reality of how they are to live in light of that. This time, Jesus shares a very detailed description where he says he'll be betrayed, sentenced to death, handed over to the Gentiles, mocked on, spit on, flogged, executed, and resurrected. And just as he has done before in chapters 8 and in chapter 9, what follows this revealing will turn out to be how his disciples and those who will come after him are supposed to live. So, let's see how he got there. Second, let's look at the disciples' reaction. So Jesus pulls, he's revealing to them his mission. All these things are going to happen to me and I will be resurrected. And then we have the follow-up. And we, we know that Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem. He says he's leading the way. So he's a little bit separate from his disciples and those that were following. And we get this very vivid uh, story about James and John, who are brothers, who kind of catch up to Jesus, pull themselves away from the crowd. And they go up to Jesus and they go, hey, Jesus, we have a question, but before we ask it, we want you to do it. Right? Jesus, I have a, we have a request for you. We're going to ask you a question, but before we ask, we just want you to do it. We want you to grant, as if Jesus is like a genie, Right? Like, I'm going to use one of my wishes now, Jesus. So before I ask, I just want to make sure that's how this works, right? And oftentimes, I'll tell you, I read that scripture, we can hear that story, and we think, oh, the audacity of the disciples. How, how would they have the courage to do that? How, how short-sighted? And the reality is that we do that all the time. That we all the time have very specific things we want from Jesus, and we want him to give us the specifics. When I was, when I was a high school pastor, I could guarantee you, kids wanted prayer, high school students wanted prayer two times in their high school. Before the driver's test and before the SAT. <laughs> Pray for me, Jeff. We have specific things. So anyway, the disciples, John, James and John. And, and what's their request? They're starting to pick up on this idea that Jesus is the Messiah. And that he is going to rule and reign forever. And that his resurrection is a new reality, a new world. And they understand he's going to have a throne. And so what do they want? They want seats one and two. They want that when Jesus dies, they want to sit at his right and his left. Right? For them, of all of the earth, there were 12 special people who got to spend significant time with Jesus. 12 wasn't good enough. They wanted one and two. They, they had ambition to be the best. They wanted prominence in this new kingdom. They weren't above self-promoting themselves to get there. They wanted to acquire the seats, to have the esteem, to have the recognition of being the best, being the greatest. Right? When we read about this, the absurdity stands out. But again, we do this all the time. We'll get to how Jesus responds to him in a moment, but then we find out there's another reaction of the disciples. Because Jesus responds to this request, they have this dialogue about drinking the cup and being baptized, and we're going to get to that in a moment. But what's interesting is as Jesus is answering their question about the right and the left, we find out that the other disciples start overhearing what's happening in this conversation with James and John and Jesus, and it says that they became indignant. They were getting frustrated. They were upset. They were, they were, they were bothered that James and John would do this. Now, Here's the truth. We can tell from what Jesus teaches right after we see that they're indignant that they weren't upset because James and John were just missing it. They weren't upset that James and John were embarrassing them as the disciples. I can't believe you guys are asking those questions. 
What are you doing? You're not getting it. No, they were frustrated, indignant, uh, bothered because James and John got to Jesus first with the question. They had the exact same desires for prominence, for ambition, self-promotion, getting the right seats. All of them wanted to be the greatest. This was not a new conversation for them. This was not a new dialogue that Jesus didn't know was happening. Just a chapter earlier, in chapter 9, Jesus pulls them aside, shares with them about how it's going to end for him, and they continue to walk. And when they stop later in the story, Jesus goes to them and goes, what were you guys arguing about while we were walking? And one of them has the courage to say, oh, we were, we were just talking about who's going to be the greatest of us. And that's when Jesus follows up with the first shall be last and servant to all. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. This was not a new conversation for the disciples. They were not frustrated with James and John because they were asking the wrong question. They were frustrated with James and John because they asked the question first. Now, it's important. Being the greatest, having prominence, having a strong ambition... I do not believe that these things in and of themselves are bad things. I'll tell you the truth. I want, to be a, I want to be a great pastor. I want to be an incredible husband. I want to be a great dad. The question isn't that this desire to be excellent and to, and to succeed. The question is, why do you want to do those things? And is it for yourself or is it for others? Is it for God? When the disciples are focused on themselves is where we see the problem. We want the right and left. Now, now it's important. It's important to understand that this request to be the greatest and to succeed and to win and to be number one and number two, that's not just limited to the stories we read about in the scripture. This is the culture that you and I live in all the time. I mean, you can't pick a television show. Every reality show on TV is about winning or being the best or acquiring. I used to think the only safe channel on TV, the only pure channel that only had one sin it focused on, which was gluttony, was the Food Network. And now I just saw this show. I mean, I'm a little behind. They have a show called Cutthroat Kitchen. You seen this thing? So the whole point of the show is to bid more money than the other person so that they can be more handicapped in how they cook. So they have to cook inside of like a small eggshell. And, and you can cutthroat kitchen, survivor, amazing race, apprentice, all these shows. It's somehow okay to do whatever you need to do to get ahead. It's okay as long as it's about prominence and it's about acquiring and it's about getting to that ultimate goal. We, you are, it is acceptable in so many circles to do whatever you want to do. In fact, there have been so many Christians on some of these shows that have differentiated their faith from the game. Makes no sense to me. Do you know that for high school students and college students that the, the reality of how they have uh, grown up academically that for a lot of people there is no moral issue with, with cheating. You just got to do whatever you got to do to survive. Some of that's because the incredible, ridiculous pressure we put on them to be perfect at everything. But the pressure to, to it's, just a, it's just a norm. And we could look at that judgmentally, but the reality is everybody here knows the corporate world works the exact same way. Whatever you need to do 
to win, to be number one, to be number two. Because this reality, this drive for self, this drive to make ourselves amazing, because that is so true, we really need Jesus. We need teaching. I mean, Jesus is the third time he's doing this with them. And if you're like me, I need a third time and a 30th time and a 300th time. Because the drive to think about myself and my own impact in this world and my own success is so strong that I need to counter it with what life is really about. So because of this reality, we need Jesus, we need insight, we need his teaching. So let's look at Jesus' response to see where we can find some hope. First, remember, James and John pull away from the, the pack and they go up to Jesus and they say, we want number one, number two, we want the best seats. Jesus turns to them and says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink and can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized? Can you drink the cup? Right, we, we now have some more perspective to understand the cup. The cup is, 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 is the cross, is, is the, this new covenant. Shed in my blood. The cup refers to suffering and the self-denial that it will take for Jesus to be great, for Jesus to be the Messiah. You see, they, they got something right. They understood that Jesus was the king and that he was going to be the one on the throne, but they, they didn't understand that the road to the throne wasn't about grabbing power, it was about relinquishing power. Right? They were going to Jesus trying to grab, trying to get there first. We want seats one and two. And Jesus, can you drink the cup I drink? Can you, can you live the life I'm going to live? This isn't about me grabbing something. This is about me giving it all up and being poured out. So they got the, ro- they got the throne right, but they didn't understand the way to the throne isn't something to be grasped, it's something to be relinquished. In fact, when they respond, very eager, we can. They didn't even know what the cup meant. They just wanted those seats. James and John, drink my cup. And so now Jesus is having this dialogue with them and the other disciples, are, again, are getting frustrated getting, uh, because they beat them to the question. And then Jesus goes into this teaching, these words that are powerful. You, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. So the first image that Jesus does, he's starting to create this image of, of you, guys, you guys are so influenced by the culture and by the government structures of our day, when you think about someone being in charge, you're thinking about the Gentile rulers who use their power, who use their authority to lord over people, who use their influence and their power to, uh, to, 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 to hold people down. So Jesus is starting to create this image, this juxtaposition between the way they understand power that's, that's modeled for them in their culture and then what his power will look like. So when he says, not so with you, Greg has said this several times, this is a turning point in, in the Gospel of Mark. This is where Jesus makes this, this strong declaration declaring that there's, there's the earthly kingdom and then there's his kingdom. And so when he says, not so with you, you are not going to be the kind of people who receive power so that you can hold people down. You're not going to be the kind of people who you model your leadership based on the government leadership. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This juxtaposition between lording over people, using authority to hold people down, to be greater than other people, and then Jesus saying, you want to be great? This is about you serving people. It's a very different understanding. This is about you serving everyone, being a slave to everyone, and modeling your life. Juxtapositions how on the rulers of earth think, how King Jesus thinks. Now, I'll tell you this. As true as it is that you and I, in our, in our human nature, have this desire to self-persevere and to be successful and to, and to think of ourselves and to only worry about ourselves, as true as that is, there's also something, I believe, in each one of us, because we are created in the image of God, that recognizes that the very words that Jesus just said to his disciples are just as true. We know, and we are drawn to stories that talk about sacrifice and selflessness that's, that's why movies exist. That's why books exist. I'm a nonfiction person. I've been thinking about what are the couple books I've read this year that have really stood out to me. And the first one was a book called Into the Fire by Dakota Meyer, who was a Marine who got, he's the first living Marine in 38 years to be honored with the Medal of Honor. And it's a story of this battle in Afghanistan where he just time after time went into harm's way in one of the most dangerous battles up to that time. And he would put himself in danger to go reach and grab people and save people. Not just American soldiers, but everyone who was hurt, he was pulling out. He saved something like 12 people and 24 people attribute their, their story to him. And he gets out of the service and he's just working construction when he gets a phone call from the president saying, we want to award you with the Medal of Honor. I could not put that book down because page after page was selflessness. Page after page was sacrifice. Page after page, someone was intentionally putting themselves in danger to save someone else. We're drawn to those stories. The other great book I read this year is a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Now, Brian Stevenson is an incredible public interest attorney who has a nonprofit in Alabama. He went to Harvard Law and had the pick of jobs. He could have made millions of dollars. But he so got connected and through his faith got understood that there is a whole population of people in Alabama who, because they had no real representation, that they're sitting on death row, even though there's clear evidence that they had nothing to do with the crime. So he starts a nonprofit, and he, again, dozens and dozens of people who have been exonerated because he has spent his life sacrificing for others, where he has spent his life, and I could not put the book down, so he did this too, and then this happened to this person, and he had to go raise money so that he could do this to pay. And he has just spent his life serving. We are drawn to stories like that. In fact, the, the, the story uh, uh, Unbreakable, or, uh, the, Louis Zamperini, Un, what? Unbroken, Unbroken. He was unbreakable, I didn't lie. Um, <laughs> unbroken, I saw that a couple of weeks ago. And, and some of you have read that book. Why do, we, why, do we, why do we hold Louis Zamperini up as an example? Because he lived a selfless life. Because he gave up so much for others. There's a part in the story, in his life story, where, where he, he got punched in the face by his, everybody in the Japanese camp. Because, and he had a choice. He could, he could take the punishment and get punched in the face by all of his friends, or he could be free, and he chose that. We're drawn to this. So it's true on one side, we are, we are selfish people. 
It's so true, but we also, we understand that there's a selfless way to live that is right and that is good, and that is the God-created way inside each of us. And friends, there is no better story, there is no better example of what selfless living is and what sacrifice is and what it's all about than the story of Jesus Christ. He he says at the very end that not even he, the Son of Man, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, for all. Friends, Jesus' response to our selfishness is to be selfless and to follow him. We, We are so used to having such messed up ideas of what power is. We're so used to this, this culture that says, do whatever you need to do to get ahead. Whatever you need to do to keep your job. Do whatever you need to do to make more money. Do whatever you need to do so your kids get into the right schools. Do whatever you need to do. And if you need to, to, to kind of minimize your Christianity to do it, that's okay because at the end it's about you. And Jesus says, no, 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 true greatness. True greatness is one where it's marked by a life of serving, by a life of of even becoming a slave to other people, a life where the, the, last shall, the first shall be last, a, a life where we deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. Friends, these words of Jesus are not isolated to one moment in the Scriptures. This is the very life of Jesus. Jesus didn't teach like, hey, someday in your life, I hope you get to a point where you start serving other people and, and that will be kind of the bonus part of following Jesus. No, this is, the, this is in many ways the foundation of living out our faith, is being a selfless person, being someone who considers others better than ourselves, someone who doesn't take somebody else's moment, somebody else's crisis, somebody else's time and insert ourselves into it, but someone who's fully present with others in all times of their life the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so what would this mean for us at lake avenue church and i guess the first question i have is whose moments are you taking that's what drove my note to my wife yesterday is recognizing over the last many days of hosting people in our home and family and christmas that I was more interested in in my own moments than anybody else's. So is it in your family? A friend of mine tells a story where they were with a family member one time and they were talking about what was going on in their lives and she she now refers to these moments as the a going to New York moment. Because they're talking to uh, their sister about a friend of hers who lived in New York who was dying of cancer. And she's telling her sister the story, and she goes, well, you know, my, my friend, and here's what's going on, she has cancer, and she's probably got two months to live, and she lives in New York. And her sister goes, New York? I love New York. Have you ever been to the restaurant? Like, totally missed the whole point of the conversation, and just looked for a way to insert themselves into the story. Did you go to New York on people? Is it your family? Is it in your work? Is work for you? Have you, are you do you recognize that where you work is the very place that God has placed you to be his, his agent of reconciliation? That in your workplace is, is the environment for which you are to enter in to people's lives, where you're to walk with them? Oftentimes, you know, we, in light of not having the perfect job or being frustrated at work, we miss these moments to be Christ in those places. And are you making your day more about yourself than other people? And the hard one for me and for all of us is, 
Are we even taking moments here at church for ourselves? Like, if the truth was told, is our motivation of even being a part of this church or being here this morning is because I like something, and when it doesn't happen, I don't like it. Myra helped us understand our three essential connections are worship, community, and service. And, and we do not sit around as a staff and audit and go, how many do we think are active in worship and community and service? But I'll tell you, my gut instinct would say this, is where we struggle to have the most participation is service. That's why we can be here, and, and I can tell you, I almost want us to do a, a monthly report, like the unemployment report, to tell you how many people are not serving in our children's ministry or our student ministry. That, that the numbers are embarrassing for the kind of church we are. And we start this care deacon ministry specifically because we recognize that crisis is just part of life and we want to walk with each other in times of crisis. We want to walk with those who are part of our church and part of our community through those times. And, and to do that, we need more people. Is your time being a part of Lake Avenue Church more about you than it is about others and about Jesus? Lil and I were even talking last night that so often even some of the songs that we sing that are popular uh, in worship are more about ourselves than they are about God. It's just so easy. So whose moment are you taking and what are you going to do to start giving it back? If Jesus is correct and we believe that and we are to be a servant to all and a slave to be the greatest, where are you asking God to show you who you need to be serving. You know, for me, I, I've shared a little bit. It was just very clear this past week, but the truth is, and if we had a longer conversation, I could start going through my role as a pastor at this church, and my role as a father, my role as a husband, my role as a neighbor, my role as a son, and I could list for you areas where I need to grow. This is a lifelong journey. We're thankful for God's grace. We don't have to be perfect in following him. But friends, this is a high calling. Walking with Jesus means walking with people. And to, to somehow combat the forces inside that just want it, our life to be about ourselves, to recognize that real life and real greatness is found when we relinquish that and embrace the other. Join me in prayer. God, thank you for the disciples and how their reality is our reality, how we can see ourselves in them. So we don't read stories like this and, and laugh at them. We read stories like this and are humbled at the truth of what the human experience is about, that the very same truths that were evident for them so many years ago are very true in our own lives. We need your help, God. We need to be reminded of you, the Son of Man, not coming to serve but to to give your life as a ransom for many. May that be our example. I pray for myself and each one here, my brothers and sisters, as we go into this next week, that there would be more moments of entering into other people's space and time and moments than, than, than entering our own. We need your help to do that. We love you, Jesus. Amen.